All right, welcome to episode number 54 of the Bearded Marketers Podcast, the only internet marketing podcast that matters. I'm Rob. And I'm Corey. We've got an awesome lineup tonight. I think we really do. This one's gonna be this one's gonna blow your socks off. So I appreciate you tuning in every Monday morning at thebeardedmarketers.com slash podcast. Of course, you can also pick us up on iTunes. Leave a review, if you will. Greatly yeah. appreciate it. Reviews and ratings. We would greatly appreciate that. Also, check us out, thebeardedmarketers.com. We've got tons of other content out there. we got videos along with the podcast. Also, take a second to sign up for the newsletter. Also, Twitter, hit us up there. We definitely post often little articles, tips, tricks, whatever random things we find on the internet that would help you make more money with your internet marketing. Uh, we post it to our Twitter account mostly. All right, so that's out of the way. What are you drinking? I'm doing a Moscow Mule. I'm, I'm just going mm-hmm. back to the basics. We finally re-upped on all the liquor supplies. So With me tonight, we're doing a little bit of Buffalo Trace on your recommendation. Uh-oh. Ginger beer and a little bit of lime as well. Quite tasty. Buffalo Trace. What the hell is that called? Did you I just make that out of free, <laughs> free poured, okay. which I did learn in Utah is illegal. Can't free pour drinks there. Really? Yeah, it was an interesting... So this is going back to the Summit experience. Every liquor bottle there, state mandated to have these clicker things, which would pour out 1.5 ounces every time and pour it in. There's no free pouring that That, is legal. That sounds like no fun. I will leave the (laughs) comments that I have in my head there. But Interesting. That sounds crazy. It is. It really does sound like we're getting off topic here, but that's it's a little too far (laughs) in my opinion. Let's go ahead and get into this. Like Rob said, jam-packed episode. Starting things off, social media post-engagement, rolling right along the cost of bad data. And is that something that you need to consider? Moving right along to the rules of e-commerce, what are the things that you need to keep in mind to make those dollars in the highly competitive e-commerce space? And the last one will keep sort of vague negative testing. Dun, dun, dun. So, Professor Rob, kick us off. Social media post engagement. What is that about? Here with your weekly stats breakdown. Let's play a game on this one. Actually, okay. first a question for you. Uh, if you were in to my pick, eye. right, exactly. <laughs> if you were to pick uh, one of these three stats as a general measure of engagement with your site, would you pick a average time on site? Okay. B, average pages per visit, or C, average bounce rate. Again, I mean, this is, it's tough to say with generalities, but if you were to pick one, I which would, would you say pick? in the world of tabbed browsing, average time on site is not acceptable. So that leaves me with bounce rate or pages per visit. Yes. Bounce rate to me is just kind of singular in view. So that's going to leave me with pages per visit. That's what I would pick. Okay. Final was, answer. I like your analysis too. You didn't Thank just you. pick one. Thank you. Um, okay. So we're going to go with average pages per visit. So this is a study that was done by a company called Shareaholic over, I believe, the last six months. They gathered data on a bunch of different websites and measured the engagement on these websites post-click referral from a social media site. So for example, YouTube, Google Plus, LinkedIn, Twitter, whatever it is, uh, they measured those three things. So you picked average pages for visits. So I will talk about the rankings of these different ones. And then maybe I'll hint at some of the other measurements and how they ranked. So uh, number one on the list, if, okay, let's play another game. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So here here we have (laughs) YouTube, Google Plus, LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook. These are the five Google social, Plus is last. <laughs> social networks. <laughs> don't, don't get ahead of the game. <laughs> what is number one for average pages per visit 
post-click referral from one of those five websites, which would you pick? Number one. YouTube, Facebook, Google Plus, and what was the other one? YouTube, Google Plus, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. Ah, LinkedIn. LinkedIn, you're saying that's number one? Yes. That is... No, that's not correct. Damn it. Number one (laughs) is YouTube. Really? 2.99 pages per visit on average. Not three. No, no. It's (laughs) 2.999 forever. You know why I didn't pick that is I felt that a lot of people might check out content then return back to absorbing the content on YouTube. So that's pretty interesting. Well, here's what I think it might be because it's damn hard to actually find a link on YouTube. Yeah. So if you do, you're probably looking damn hard for it. So is that go after it? Did this study look at link clicks from ads versus video comments? No, no, no. Just straight links. Yeah, straight, straight referral post clicks. Mm, So I think that's I think that might be a huge actual influencer here because the rest all have are basically ways to post links, right? Sure. And YouTube's not. So let's go to the flip side here, and then we can talk about some of the ones in between. Okay. Which do you think would place last in terms of average pages per visit? Mm. Again, the four left are Google+, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Facebook. So you choose Facebook. Yes. Damn it, you are right that yes. time. <laughs> Great job. <laughs> All right. Facebook came in last, 2.03 average pages mm. per visit. That feels good. Um. <laughs> In terms of why that is, I don't know. Maybe because Facebook ads are all up in your face. I, I want to get back to my creeping and, on yeah. people on Facebook, which, by the way, I'm not on Facebook, but that's why I know yeah, that people, yeah, that's exactly. why I use it. it, it it's not me, but if someone were to, <laughs> that's what they would be that's doing. That's what I hear from Facebook. all the young hip kids. <laughs> uh, okay, so the rest of them ranked in, in this order. Google Plus, second, 2.45, LinkedIn at 2.23, and then Twitter at 2.15. Interesting, I don't know, sort of breakdown there. I guess I think some of that makes sense. Google Plus, I think the reason why YouTube, both YouTube, Google Plus, and LinkedIn, not both, all three of those, ranked higher on the list is because it's harder to find links and crap on those. So, I mean, sure. you don't have like a ton of people actually using Google Plus for mm-hmm. the social network part of it. So those people who are engaged actually do care about what they find on that network. Yeah, I think there's a little bit more filtering of the commentary that are on those social networks. Whereas Twitter and Facebook can have a little bit more noise aspect to them. But also, mm-hmm. there's a much larger networks for people. So there might be a higher draw to return back to further engage with more people in your circles. So your attention when you go somewhere might be continually pulled back onto those social networks because you might have a, a higher circle of possible engagements on them as well. So there's a lot of, I think, different mm-hmm. factors yeah. on there. but. So in terms of the other measurements that this study looked at, they all sort of fall in line with what you would expect. Again, the sites that had higher average pages per visit had lower average bounce rates. In general, they all sort of followed that same sort of trends. No surprises there. I think just big surprise being traffic from YouTube tends to stick around. Yeah, that, that was a, a little bit different than I think I had imagined, obviously, because I picked wrong. But <laughs> <laughs> So do you think that there's any kind of takeaways with, I think maybe the takeaway is how much you should value your efforts maybe on some of those channels. Yeah. And that may be going to be different site to site, but if you can get people's attention on YouTube, you might garner more mm-hmm. attention for longer. I think the tough thing is both YouTube and Google Plus, you can't directly buy link-based mm-hmm. ads on those. I mean, obviously with YouTube, you can buy, you know, AdSense for content type stuff, but it's not, you know, done in a very good way. 
And LinkedIn ads are obscenely expensive. Oh, yeah. So, you know, those top three ones, they're tough to get paid placements on. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you got to actually have some good content. Might be interesting to some of these engagement metrics. If people run sites that are monetized through ads, it might be important to note that some of these social channels definitely have a higher engagement rate, which might mean that if you have to focus your efforts on trying to garner traffic from these social channels, that if you're monetizing with ads, it might behoove you to reach out more to the LinkedIn, Google Plus, and YouTube crowds because your propensity for getting revenue per visitor might be actually a bit higher with those channels. So yeah. it might be something interesting to look at if you do monetize your sites with ads. Moving right along, cost of bad data. So this was actually spurred on by an e-consultancy article that I ran across and really also our experiences with working with partners. But Particularly with this article, what they wanted to look at was what is the average cost of businesses with bad data? Now, full disclosure, it doesn't really go into deep details on what this bad data means. They just talk about it in the abstract of bad business data, whether that is order fulfillment, whether that is web metrics. It's really kind of the all-encompassing. It is focused on e-commerce businesses, but... They don't go into the nitty gritty on what they qualify as bad data, but being that as it may, what the data showed, and this was a survey from Experian from top businesses, was that 88% of companies suffered from bad data internally that materially impacted their bottom line, and on average, that impact was 12% to revenue which to me was actually a a pretty surprising number that businesses quantify bad data, but also that it had that significant of an impact. I mean, 12% to revenue is quite a large number for some businesses, depending on where your margins are at. So other things that they go into in depth on the survey was not only do typically these companies suffer from just bad data, but a lot of times those dovetail into problems with other services. So 28% of the companies that were surveyed that fell into the 88% with data issues also said that their emails suffered good accuracy on order fulfillment and actually personalized to the customer. Also, they said that 21% of those companies suffered reputation damage because of their bad data problems. So again, it's kind of hard to quantify what this bad data meant to each and every business. But Mm -hmm. I did want to talk about really the cost of bad data that we've run into with our partners and the benefits of auditing your data every once in a while. Now, particularly what we tend to work with our partners is your web metrics data. And what we find time and time again is people really just take what tools are reporting to them as gospel. And they don't really dive into the numbers to one, maybe spot check to make sure that all their tagging is correct, have tags on all the pages. There's no duplication. There's no JavaScript errors that are going to prevent some of this data from communicating. But Also, it's striking to me how many businesses that we work with that don't think to filter some of their own internal traffic out of their website metrics, which severely skew your data quite obscenely. Your internal traffic is not going to behave as similar as outside traffic. And in some cases, you have internal people placing not only orders for customers, but also internal test orders. So these people are coming through, they're nailing down these processes very quickly, but also placing transactional 
type situation. We've run into that quite Mm -hmm. a few times with some of our partners that have a good amount of just junk traffic that really gums up the total picture of what they should be looking on and focusing on. Especially when you look at things like averages all the time, which is what you do mostly in, in the analytics platforms we use. If you're looking at averages of eight pages per visit and 20 minutes average time on site when someone goes through and, and smokes through the process in 30 seconds and maybe uh, multiple really, times a you know, day you know, that really starts to skew those right. results and really make things look different than how they actually are you know i have some recent experience with a different kind of bad data so not directly related to analytics but in terms of like pulling email sends and marketers i think rely on data inside their big data databases on customers, I think maybe too heavily or are too confident in their accuracy oftentimes Mm -hmm. when they build marketing campaigns. So for example, one client we work with has a massive database of customers and they keep data on when they created accounts, uh, you know, what kind of products they've looked at, which kinds of ones they've purchased. But what we've run into is you know, for some reason, for massive numbers of accounts, we're missing name information, which makes no sense. I mean, that should be there. For some reason, we're missing when they created accounts. We're missing key pieces of information, which point to some sort of problem in data collection. But the marketers oftentimes aren't aware of that. And so they send very specific campaigns out to specific target segments of this email list that could be totally wrong. It's like, no, I've already purchased this from you. Why are you sending me a recovery email? And you do that often enough because you just have sort of bad data and you alienate customers or you get unsubscribes at an obscene rate or whatever it is. That kind of stuff... Starts to shake some trust and confidence. Right, it's back-end data that was built by a developer that wasn't designed to be used in the way that you're trying to use it, right? It wasn't designed to be that reliable in the way that you're trying to use. So I think that's or, sort of a or different... Or things might have changed. Yeah, and exactly. You didn't think yeah. to maybe audit some of these things. And you just, like you said, you trust the tools too much. Yeah. Not to say that we're anti-technology, but just because we use a lot of automation tools or things that are very fancy and, and we think that are very complex doesn't mean that marketers need to also give it a human eye once over and check things are working correctly. We've given some pretty specific examples. How you need to audit your own data might vary person to person. Maybe there's some automated tools out there that will run through some kind of natural checks. With analytics, there are some tools out there that will run through your site and make sure that tags are present and things like that. But I think that Everyone should maybe mark in their calendars every month or two to audit what do we have going on? Does everything pass a sniff test? And it actually might make sense to, if you have some assets in your company, maybe get another set of eyes on it. Oftentimes, I know when we're working on coding or something else, sometimes you just miss things because you're staring at it day in and day out. Definitely take the time, understand where you might have some bad data, audit it, Give it a spot check, just like when you should check your oil every couple weeks, you should be checking your marketing processes as well. Because it can, like we read in that article, 12% of revenue, that's a huge amount. I mean, that whittles away a lot of margin, can really hurt our profitability. And we can't really afford that in this day and age, being hyper-competitive online. Oh, yeah. Can't afford that. So audit your data. If you need some help, reach out to us. We could probably either help you directly or put you in contact with someone that can, but it behooves you to. So moving right along, 
rules of e-commerce. Yeah. Coach Rob this time with his playbook for the rules of e-commerce. What are we looking at here? Well, so I, I think this goes back to the olden days of when mm-hmm. we used to do this podcast. I mean, we've been doing this for... So cue flashback music. Yeah, yeah back, back when <laughs> we had to use AOL dial-up back in the early days of this podcast. We'd oftentimes talk about what you know what's bugging us online. I, I had a couple segments where I would talk about things that bug. Imagine me. Red Foreman. This was what Rob was. Yeah, I'm gonna put my foot up your ass <laughs> if you do these things on your website. So for this specific one, this applies to all you e-commerce marketers out there, salesmen out there. If you run an e-commerce site, listen up. I got a couple rules for you. These are the new rules of the road for selling things online. Again, e-commerce mostly. If you sell products, so number one on this list, ship same day. You have to. <laughs> Especially within reason, right? So have a cutoff, you mean? Yeah. So if if I'm ordering before noon, you better ship the same day. Come on, get with it. I know how things work now online. <laughs> Amazon has ruined everything, and that'll probably be the case for most of these examples. But shipping same day. So for this year, ship same day. Next year, ship by drones is a requirement. Ship, ship before I know I need oh, it. Okay. So as I'm in the cart, you're already shipping it mm-hmm. before I even check out. And then you like recall it back if I don't <laughs> complete the checkout, something like that. Uh, but seriously, ship same day. Come on. Enough of the you know, ships in a week or two kind of crap with the standard shipping stuff. And don't just ship same day for people who try to get next day air or whatever it is. Ship same day for everything. It just... Customer service is king. Exactly. Um, It's what a lot of people are coming to expect, especially if you have tracking numbers on everything. I know that you sat on that thing for like a week (laughs) before you shipped it out. You can't pull that that game anymore. Number two, customer service uh, responses in minutes or hours, not days. Come on. What again... If I have to fire an email off and wait three, four business days to get a reply, I've already bought it from someone else. Yeah. Seriously, I've already bought it. email me back. And honestly, your live customer support needs to be on point. It needs to get back to me within minutes. Or again, I'm going somewhere else. There's too many other competitors out there selling exactly. Well, it's, it's too easy to get in front of customers' eyes at this yeah. point. I can open up a web store with relative ease and within a couple months worth of work, start ranking for these things. And it's easy for clients to find alternatives. Back in the AOL days, like you talked about, it took some effort to search things out and you had to filter through a lot of junk. As search engines and people have gotten savvier, you can't really crutch on that stuff anymore and you need to be better at what you do. So like you said, customer service. Yeah. One of the businesses we operate in, uh, we've invested heavily in customer service, immediate replies as easily as we can in those sort of automated help people out. That's not just an investment in customer service. I mean, then there's actually sales numbers you can apply to some of that stuff sure, absolutely. If, you're, if you're smart at tracking some of those things. Number three, free returns. You know, again, Amazon has ruined this for me. But if I was it them or Zappos that really started that big push? I mean, Zappos was one of the huge ones. Mm -hmm. You know, I never really return anything to Amazon. I pretty much just keep it, keep it all, all Mm -hmm. for me. But Zappos, you know, especially if you're in the fashion industry, to me, it's unreasonable to expect people to buy clothing, shoes, whatever it is online, and then have to pay 10, 15, $20 to ship it back to you for a return. That's ridiculous. That's me taking on more risk than I'm probably comfortable with, you know, going to the store. Maybe if I live in the boonies and I don't really have shopping options, then mm-hmm. maybe that's a little bit more acceptable. It's just kind of the cost of doing business with you. But for people that live in metro areas that can go down the street or whatever, I say this as I order like peanut butter from Amazon, but <laughs> <laughs> that stuff, like you said, I think not only is becoming less acceptable, but as customers have evolved online, they've come to expect 
better customer service because there are more retailers that are offering that. Yeah. So it's now becoming the expected norm. And if you don't offer these types of things, you're seeing outside of. But also, I think where the benefits potentially lie as well is instead of people coming to buy items from you as just like a commodity, I'm offering you this product, you're giving me money. Now, when you start to offer these things, it becomes a value proposition of why I should come back. Like I had a great experience. There's tangible reasons why I want to continue to shop with you. Not only that you had these items, but I don't have to worry about things like returns and things like that. And you have a good website and you're taking care of all these other things. This becomes kind of icing on the cake where we continue that conversation where it wasn't just, it just happenstance that you had the right product at the right time. Now it's something that's memorable in my mind. And if I'm looking for that again or something else, maybe you're the first stop that I go to. Yeah. I mean, I know you said it was sort of maybe the cost of doing business for people who live in rural areas and they just have to deal with it. I I would flip it around. I think it's the cost of doing business, especially in certain sectors. You know, I mentioned Mm -hmm. fashion and, and, you know, shoes and other things like that. If you're going to sell those things online, the cost of doing that is free returns and that's expected and you just have to do that. To speak to your point though about it sort of creates goodwill in customers and gets beyond the transactional nature of I'm just purchasing this one product. Mm -hmm. It turns you on, and this is some sort of concept that I haven't really fleshed out much, but it, it almost turns your site, you're selling products, but it almost turns you into a service. It turns you into the the destination I go to to buy that certain type of whatever it is. And I don't view you in a way of, well, they just had the cheapest one. So I'll go to whoever has the cheapest next whatever the heck it is I have to buy. Again, Amazon has a decent example of that. They've turned me into a one-stop shop. Mm-hmm. I view them more as a, I get whatever I need from them kind of thing in terms of how I shop with them. So one last thing on here, customer loyalty programs. I mean, this almost applies in real life too. If you're going to bother with this, make it worth a damn. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of customer loyalty programs that I, I can't even really understand, like giving me points that I didn't have to translate over into like dollar amounts that I do the math and it's like, oh man, I just saved like 33 cents. <laughs> what or, what a ripoff. I mean, that's uh, that's borderline insulting to me. <laughs> and I'll give you a real world example. So there's a sports nutrition place here in town. Which, by the way, that was a real world example. <laughs> kidding, I'll ahead. give you another Go one. You get rewards dollars or points, whatever, for every dollar that you spend with them. At 150 rewards points, which is $150 spent, they give you a $1.50 protein bar. I, um, I have a super similar real-world example. <laughs> that yeah. actually angers me more than that's like a, ooh, goody. Yeah, so, you know, I, I hate to knock on this this company here locally in town, but it's a, they sell saltwater aquarium stuff. Okay. And, you know, I go there all the time, whatever. So they came out with this new, there's like this, I guess there's some company we'll pushing We'll tweet this. out a picture of Rob's aquarium. Right. It looks baller. It's, there's some local company that I guess like pushes these local stores to like carry an iPad type setup and like you scan things to get points at your local stores. So it's like this kind of nifty new integration. So I saw it, it was new. I was like, okay, let me sign up for this. I looked at the reward levels, same sort of thing. It's like I spend $200, I get a bucket of water for free. And it's like, <laughs> come on. That's again, insulting. Ridiculous. Yeah. And I, th- I think that I'm actually going through this exercise with one of the companies that I work with. And I think where a lot of people struggle with these is number one, making them worth something. But I think where they also struggle is how to broach this and mm-hmm. not over market it throughout the sale and finding the right place to get people involved with reward programs. Because I think if they're well fleshed out and worth anything, then it can be a reason for people to return. I think where people need to tread very lightly is 
when's the best time to enter into that conversation and do it in an efficient manner to where I'm showing the benefits, I'm showing why you should care. It's very easy to sign up and I don't feel like it's going to be an extreme load on me or it's going to take an extreme amount of time. But I think that rewards programs can be of value, but they take some serious thought to execute well. And I think that very few companies actually see that through. So make sure that you're paying attention to those. That was Rob's rules of e-commerce. So take some of those to heart. I think that they're applicable to even some of the lead gen guys out there as well, but definitely some things to take in mind. Moving right along, and we won't spend too much time on this, but I wanted to talk about negative testing. So this was spurred on by an article in Search Engine Land where this lady talked about landing pages for PPC in particular. She talked about that a lot of people overlook testing the removal of items from a page to add clarity. So I think she had a valid point in that a lot of people over time just start adding more and more things to websites, you know, especially in our space where people really consume webinars and the best tips on how to market to people. A lot of times it involves adding things. Let's add some testimonials. Let's add some trust seals. Let's add dynamic headlines. And there can be a myriad of different things that you can add to a site. And I think at a certain point, people need to take a step back to see where their site has grown and where the experience is at. And at the end of the day, are you still communicating effectively what you are all about, why people should care, and why they should A, either give you information, time, or money? And are you still doing that effectively? Or have you essentially crowded up the message so much that so many things are grabbing for their attention that I don't really know how to digest what you're presenting to me in a very controlled easy to understand way. So I did want to put the challenge out there for certain marketers that if you do testing, whether that is ad testing on PPC, whether that is on your site, or even when you're doing real life marketing, whether that's like pamphlets or commercials or things like that, why don't you test getting back to the basics and slimming things down? I think it's really applicable for a lot of marketers that I think they get a little overzealous with their messaging and they try to cram so much into so little. And oftentimes you sort of overwhelm the listener and your message really gets lost and it stops becoming memorable because I'm trying to process so much that it becomes something that maybe there's a subconscious, the brain is like, okay, that was too much discard for yeah. self-preservation. But I think that more people need to go the routes of potentially removing some things and keeping it simple. Now, in this lady's article, particularly with PPC, you have to be careful of your quality scores. When you start removing things from pages, you can start getting into some issues and the same with your websites. But you do need to find a balance of what is too much and what is a proper way to present why people should care and, and why they're buying, for, I guess, the value proposition yeah. of your site and what you have to offer. Removing things are some of my favorite tests to do, primarily because they're super easy to run. Right. Uh, the problem with them is that it's so difficult to sell that idea. Well, politically, for sure. To, I mean, if you're an internal marketer, how the hell do you sell that to your boss? Hey, I came up with this great test idea. Let's just, you know, remove something on the page. I mean, no one really wants to hear that as some sort of brilliant idea or take the time to test something like that. As a client agency type relationship as well, it's hard to, hey, you, you know, I know you're paying us 
five fingers a month to come up with ideas uh, to test and implement them. Here's one of the ones we want to run. We want to remove half of your page. And we think that that's going to make things work better. And how do you rationalize, hey, you know, I know you're paying us a lot, but here, here was our, our simple idea. Just, let's just remove a bunch of stuff. So that's the problem with those sorts of tests. I think oftentimes they're super valuable. So many people out there just tend to throw a bunch of junk at a page and know you don't need three different bullet points about your thing with icons on each one of them. You don't need 10 testimonials as well and all these other different trust indicators and SSL seals and all this other crap. You don't need all that stuff. And I think oftentimes maybe the best takeaway from some of those tests is, hey, we just don't actually need that stuff. We're not actually going to increase a lot of conversion rates by removing stuff. But what we find out, we get the same sort of conversion rates by decluttering the page, which I think allows for further optimization in the future Mm-hmm. by refilling in that page those parts that we've removed with actually valuable stuff that's going to increase conversion sure. rates. So, yeah, and to dovetail off that, I think that oftentimes it becomes difficult not just because it's a hard test to sell people, especially when we're in our position where we're consulting with people, but even internally, that's because there's usually a lot of business interest that goes onto websites. Mm-hmm. You know, we have our social media team, we have our SEO teams, we have whatever it might be, and everyone wants to have their own piece of real estate. And so sometimes it becomes very difficult managing all these internal demands for real estate on the page. But I also think that what has also contributed to that has been the indoctrination of this fold concept to people. You know, there's a strong desire for a lot of people to jam pack as many things up above this mythical fold on a page as possible. And I think that that's also caused a lot of the cluttering that we see and people still haven't bought into letting things breathe and going sometimes with less elements can help things perform better. So that's your challenge this week. Try it out. I think you might be surprised the result. As Rob mentioned, you might have a uphill battle on convincing people internally to do it. But at the end of the day, let the data speak and see where things lie. But I think you might be surprised at where things shake out. That's going to do it for us on this episode number 54. Thank you for your time. If you enjoyed yourself, share with a friend. We greatly appreciate it. And leave a rating or a comment on iTunes. We love any feedback on the show. Give us a call 904-270-9603. Have a topic for us to discuss? Do you listen every week and go, ah, those bearded men did not talk about it again? Why don't you tell us? Give us an idea for the show. Or if you're an expert and you feel like you have something to contribute to the show, give us a call. We've done a couple interviews lately that we'll be working into the upcoming episodes. Disclaimer, though, if you're looking to push a product, this is not the right venue for that. (laughs) But if you do have some relevant experience in the industry and you think you could help out our audience, we'd love to talk with you and see if it'd be a good fit. Also, give us a call if you need some help. We have a lot of experience in the industry, and if we can't help you out directly, we can certainly put you in contact with someone that can. But that's going to do it for us. Again, have a great week, and we'll see you next time.